before we get into God's Word, I wanted to just thank you for praying for me for my trip to India recently. Many of you know that Scott Zeller and I headed out to Delhi, India a couple weeks ago to teach a seminary class on evangelism and discipleship at the Asia Biblical Theological Seminary. I just want to thank you for praying. It was a great time with the saints there. The students were wonderful. They were pastors, elders, ministry leaders. They desired to be faithful in building up their local churches. Many of them live in difficult situations. Some of them have come from Hindu background uh, families, and they're the only ones who have come to faith. Some of them are the only ones that have come to faith in their entire villages or cities. They stand up to family and societal pressure. They're standing strong for Christ. It was an honor to be with them. I love India. I've loved all my trips there. I've been there several times now, and there's a couple things that stand out to me on my trips there. Number one is how warm and welcoming everyone is. And then number two, how little access many people in India have to the gospel. Every time I go, I'm just stunned to how little access many have to the gospel. And I pray that the gospel would spread in West Bengal and in the UP and in Gujarat and Andhra Pradesh and over in Nagaland and Punjab. And I pray that the 100 million people in Bihar would be reached with the gospel. So little access to the good news in some remote parts of India. And I pray that many of us, many of us who are actually from India, would one day go back there and take the gospel. I pray that many of us would even venture out to India to plant churches there among the least reached. And this is the exciting thing about ministry here, because most of us, actually all of us, at some point in time, will have to leave this place. We'll have to go somewhere. Most of us will go back to our home country. I just thought on this trip to India, what if some of us, maybe you who are going back home to India, what if you took the gospel there? What if God would use Redeemer Church of Dubai to be planting churches in India and beyond? It's exciting to think about, isn't it? Well, and if for some reason you need more incentive to go to India, the food in India is amazing. My favorite discovery was over at the Sikh temple where I ran into this gigantic chapati-making machine. Every second this machine would just shoot out another hot chapati. Unbelievable. All my dreams were coming true right before my very own eyes. Just shooting out chapatis. Hot, ready to eat. Now, I know the cost to purchase one of these machines is outside of our church budget. I checked. But just imagine for a minute if we had one. Chapatis for everyone every Friday. You, know, you walk to the door, you get a bulletin and a hot chapati. Now, that's a good church. That's a great church. Incredible India. It's a wonderful place. Well, by means of segue, and there is one sort of, please turn in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 42 and 43. We're back in Genesis, and these two chapters are extraordinary chapters. And everything gets started because Jacob and his sons have no chapatis. That's right, the machines are broken, and there's nothing to eat. There's no grain Famine has taken over the land. 
This is a narrative filled with intriguing details and drama. Remember that the point of the entire Joseph narrative is that God will bring about his promises to promise to bring out a deliverer through the line of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. That God is bringing from their seed one who will deliver God's people. That's the point of the narrative. But the question remains, how? How is God going to bring about his promises? Especially in light of what's happened so far in this family. To be honest, Joseph has a dysfunctional family. His dad has two wives and two concubines. That's three too many women by my count. The family's a mess. There's 13 children from these four wives. 12 sons, one daughter. And Joseph was the favorite. The firstborn to his favorite wife. The other sons hated Joseph. They faked his murder by selling him as a slave. At about 17 years old, he ends up working for a high-ranking official in Egypt called Potiphar. Everything's going so well. He's doing such a good job that Potiphar elevates him to be in charge of his entire empire. Until one day things go badly when Potiphar's wife makes sexual advances to Joseph. Joseph pushes her away. He, he rejects her and even runs out of the house nearly naked to get away. Which isn't a really good thing. Especially when the wife accuses you of rape and you get thrown into prison. Well, that's a bad day. That bad day turned into several bad years as Joseph spent years in prison until he was brought in to Pharaoh. Pharaoh heard that Joseph could interpret genes. And Pharaoh had this dream he just couldn't find an interpretation for. And so he brings in Joseph and tells him the dream. He says, in my dream, there were seven fat cows and there were seven skinny cows. And the seven fat cows actually ate up the seven skinny cows, just swallowed them right up. It was a strange dream. But God allows Joseph to interpret it. He says, the fat cows are seven years of plenty that are coming, and the skinny cows represent seven years of famine that will come after. Well, Pharaoh, who essentially is the king of Egypt, brings Joseph to his palace, lets him come up with a plan to save Egypt and the people of the world. He elevates Joseph to the place of prominence in his palace. Pharaoh gives Joseph his signet ring and so he can run the entire empire. It was like having the king's platinum visa card and signature to use any time he wanted. And Joseph was the governor in charge of all of Egypt. And then the famine begins. There's no food. People are starving. The seed of Abraham is in danger of being wiped out from the face of the earth. And physically, they're dying. Spiritually, they're a wreck. Remember, Reuben's committed the despicable sin of sleeping with his father's concubine. Simeon and Levi, they massacred all the men of Shechem. And then there's Judah. Judah sleeps with a prostitute who was actually his daughter-in-law, disguised as a prostitute. The tension is running high. Will this family survive physically? Will they live? Will they survive spiritually? The question of our text, if you're taking notes, is this. How will God keep his promises through this endangered, 
messed up family. How will God keep his promises through this endangered, messed up family? I don't have any other points today. Sometimes in preaching narrative, it's best not to try to chop up the text or to break it up into three nice concrete points, but to just sit under the telling of the story and see the main point of the text just pop out that way. Chapter 42, verse 1. When Jacob learned that there was grain for sale in Egypt, he said to his sons, Why do you look at one another? Well, let me stop there. That's pretty funny. Hey, sons, why are you just sitting around staring at each other? When I read this, I don't think they were playing an old-fashioned staring contest. You ever done that? I love doing that with my kids. You just kind of look at each other, make a really serious face until one of you breaks down and starts laughing. I don't think they were doing that. They just weren't doing anything. They're just sitting around saying, well, I'm hungry. Are you hungry? Yeah, I could eat. I'm starving. Oh man, I could really use a burger and some cheese fries right now. Yep, that'd be nice. And then dad comes in. Well, boys, you're hungry. I'm hungry. We're all hungry. Get up and do something about it. Stop looking at each other and go get us some food. Verse 2. Sons, behold, I've heard that there is grain for sale in Egypt. Go down and buy grain for us there that we may live and not die. He's telling his boys, in case it's not clear to you, if we don't have food, we're going to die. Seems obvious, but he tells his sons, that's the way the world works. We need to eat. Verse 3, so 10 of Joseph's brothers went down to buy grain in Egypt. But Jacob did not send Benjamin, Joseph's brother, with his brothers, for he feared that harm might happen to him. Some things never change. Jacob has a new favorite, a new Joseph. He keeps Benjamin behind because he doesn't want him to get hurt. The other sons are apparently disposable, but not this one. So the sons leave. Verse 5. Thus the sons of Israel came to buy among the others who came. For the famine was in the land of Canaan. Now Joseph was governor over the land. He was the one who sold to all the people of the land. And Joseph's brothers came and bowed themselves before him with their faces to the ground. Doesn't this sound familiar? The boys, the brothers, bow down to Joseph. What God says will happen will always happen. God gave Joseph a dream that this would happen. And here the killers of the dream begin to fulfill that very same dream. God, God's plans always come to fruition. Isn't that encouraging to us? Doesn't that encourage you as you consider this? Doesn't that soothe your soul in the midst of your suffering? God is doing more in your life than you can see right now. 
Maybe you feel abandoned this morning. Maybe you feel afraid. Maybe you're overwhelmed by anxieties. Helpless. You honestly cannot, for the life of you, see God's hand on your life right now. Your physical pain is so desperate. Your mothering so exhausting. Your work enslaving. Your debt suffocating. Miscarriages multiplying. Your family hurting. Circumstances confusing. Now there may be minutes or hours or days, weeks, months, or even years in your life when God's presence is not felt. I mean, think about Joseph. This must have been how Joseph felt for years. A couple decades. He had been given those dreams by God, but then he's a slave. And then he's in prison. And even now he's running Egypt, but he's had no reconciliation with his family. Hasn't seen his dad or brothers. Hasn't seen anyone from back home for two decades. He couldn't see that in his circumstances, God was working all of this out to bring about his promises. But he was. Those boys back in Genesis 37 say, what dream? What dream? Let's sell this boy into slavery. Let's get rid of him. Let's erase him from our memories and from our lives forever. We'll never bow down to him, they thought. Now, it wasn't the next day. It wasn't the next week or month or even year. But 20 years later, the brothers bow down. What God says he will do, he will do. Period. Take comfort in that today. Whatever anxieties you are facing, cast them on him. God is never late in bringing about his purposes. Well, in our text, it says that Joseph immediately recognized his brothers. I mean, ten bearded Hebrew brothers, they would have stood out in a crowd. That's for sure. But they didn't know they were talking to Joseph. Joseph was clean-shaven. He was wearing Egyptian clothes. He was speaking a different language. Plus, he was younger than his brothers when they parted ways. I mean, you change a lot from your secondary school photographs to your late 30s. You look different. A few more wrinkles. A few more kilos. A little less hair. Or a lot less hair. And in that moment he sees those brothers. Joseph instantly remembers that dream. And he accuses those brothers for being spies. He's going to test them to find out if they're the same wicked brothers or if they've changed. And you've got to love the brothers' response to the accusation of being spies in verse 11. We're all sons of one man. We are honest men. Your servants have never been spies. Now that's almost laughable. I mean, we may be murderers, kidnappers, adulterers, and liars, but hey, we're honest men. We're not spies. I mean, this is ludicrous. We're 12 brothers. The youngest is with our father, and the other one is dead. Sure. Honest men. 
Now, it's no accident here that Joseph is asking them to bring Benjamin to Egypt. It's a deliberate test. It was a test of family fidelity. Joseph is wondering, have the brothers done away with Benjamin just as they did away with me? The consideration of bringing Benjamin stirs emotions in the brothers' minds. These men are confronted with their dealing with Joseph in verse 21. In truth, we are guilty concerning our brother in that we saw the distress of his soul when he begged us and we did not listen. That is why this distress has come upon us. Now, this is surprising. From the earlier narrative, we didn't know that Joseph pleaded with his brothers and begged them to set him free. I mean, the brothers were heartless, just listening to him and just negating it and rejecting it. But the most interesting word they use now is the word guilty. It's the first acknowledgement that they understand themselves to be guilty and are being punished for their actions. Looks like slowly but surely the brothers are growing in the awareness of their sin. But even now, Reuben has the gall to tell his younger brothers, Hey guys, I told you so. I was the oldest child in my home, and I promise you, you never win by saying that. Not as a brother, not as a husband, take my word for it. But it's instructive that 20 years ago, Reuben spoke up. Now Joseph hears the whole thing, he understands the Hebrew that they are speaking, and he's overcome with emotion. He leaves the room to weep. And he comes back and he takes Simeon. Now, I wonder why he didn't take Reuben. Maybe after hearing Reuben's speech, he realizes that he had better intentions and places the blame on Simeon, the second oldest, for selling him into slavery. On the way home, one of the brothers noticed money in his sack. And later they all find money in their bags. Well, here's another test for them. What will they do with this money? On verse 28, while trembling, they say to each other, What is this that God has done to us? Now the brothers are just freaking out. They realize that God is up to something. Their hearts sink. It looks like they're thieves. They come home, they tell dad everything that's happened and how they need to bring Benjamin with them to Egypt to get Simeon back and to get more food. Well, Jacob's not very happy. Verse 36, he says to them, You have bereaved me of my children. Joseph is no more, and Simeon is no more, and now you would take Benjamin? All this has come against me. Woe is me. My life has been taken from me. Joseph's dead. Simeon's dead. And now you want to take Benjamin? Everything is against me. Now, Jacob has the pity party of the year. But Reuben speaks, speaks up. Here, here you go. Here's the oldest son. What's, what's, what's Reuben's going to do here? He speaks up and says, hey, dad, don't worry about it. I have a plan. I've been thinking this through. Kill my sons if I don't bring them back to you. Put them in my hands and I will bring him back to you. Oh, Reuben. I think he means well, but this is ridiculous. Think about what he's saying. 
Okay, Dad, if we don't get your child back, I'll kill your two grandchildren. If, my child get, if your child gets hurt, my children die. Now, I sure hope his boys aren't listening to this. I mean, if you, I think you learn in Parenting 101, don't ever do this. I'm pretty sure they cover that in the first parenting class. It's like putting your children in front of you so they take the bullet instead of you. No, grandpa thinks this is ridiculous. He doesn't take it. It's crazy. Wait, if my kid dies, you'll make me feel better by killing your kids? No, that's dumb. Reuben's weak. He's clueless. He offers others' lives to be a solution to his problem. But Jacob is still clueless too. His fatherly favoritism only gets worse. Verse 38. My son shall not go down with you, for his brother is dead. And he is the only one left. If harm should happen to him on the journey that you are to make, you would bring down my gray hairs with sorrow to Sheol. He's talking to his sons, plural, and he tells them, my son, singular, can't go with them because his brother is dead and he is the only one left. He's talking as if he only has one son. Now, parents don't, Play favorites with your kids. It never works. And there's all kinds of dysfunction in this family. They're a complete mess. Look at chapter 43, verse 1. Now the famine was severe in the land, and when they had eaten the grain that they had brought from Egypt, their father said to them, Go again, buy us a little food. But Judah said to him, the man solemnly warned us, saying, you shall not see my face unless your brother is with you. Looks like they stayed back long enough to be out of grain again. It could have taken them months to eat all that food. Can you imagine Simeon when they come back for him? Hey guys, what in the world took you so long to come back for me? Well, we were hanging out eating all our chapatis, I guess. I mean, there's no urgency to get their brother back. I mean, at this point, if you look at these brothers and their father, they look like total failures. How is God going to keep his promises through this family? Where is the hope? Well, hope starts in verse 3 when Judah speaks up. Reuben's been ridiculous. But Judah's being transformed. He reiterates to his father Jacob, that man we talked to in Egypt, he commanded us to bring Benjamin with us. Well, Judah now takes his own attempt to persuade and says to his father in verse 8, send the boy with me and we will arise and go that we may live and not die, both we and you and also our little ones. And then notice his pledge to his father in contrast with Reuben in verse 9. I, Judah, will be a pledge of his safety. From my hand you shall require him. If I do not bring him back to you and set him before you, then let me bear the blame forever. If we had not delayed, we would have now returned twice. Remember, Judah is the one who conceived the scheme to sell Joseph into slavery. 
And now he takes personal responsibility for Benjamin's safety. Judah says, hey dad, I'll be accountable. You can hold me personally responsible for Benjamin. Reuben puts his son's lives on the line. Judah put his own life on the line. And Jacob goes for it. He's persuaded by Judah. He says, hey, boys, okay, take Benjamin, and why don't you take some gifts with you? You know, things that guys like. Take him a little honey, some chewing gum, pistachio nuts, and almonds to eat during the big game. Now, Jacob may have some issues, but he knows the way to a man's heart is through his stomach. Boys, bring the guy some snacks. And bring him his, his money back. In fact, pay double what you owe. Well, the brothers arrive in Egypt, they have all the nuts, and they have Benjamin, and they have double the money, and they're expecting a harsh reception. But they're met with a feast. Now, this was strange. First time in Egypt, they go to jail. Second time in Egypt, after perhaps stealing and being accused of that, they're given a feast, a feast in Joseph's home. Now, by way of illustration, let's say upon your uh, past trip to your home country, you arrive at the arrivals gate, and after you leave the plane and walk into the airport, a policeman arrests you, and the policeman beats you and puts you into prison. Eventually, you get out of prison, but then a second time, you go back to your home country, maybe a couple years later, and you're walking out into the arrival gate, out of the plane, and in the corner of your eye, you see that same policeman. And you're thinking, oh no, oh no, here we go again. You start walking the other direction, no eye contact. You're just walking away as fast as you can to try to get away. But then that same policeman, he grabs you from behind and says, I remember you. You're coming with me. You're coming over to my house for some mutton biryani and Netflix. What are you thinking at that point? I mean, you're scared and you're wondering if you've entered the twilight zone. Those brothers must have been stunned. They see the steward there in the house and they begin brown nosing him. They're starting to to talk to him. They're pleading their case. They say, well, uh, basically, um, we came here the first time to buy food. And after we left, we opened our sacks and there was silver in the sack. And, and we're bringing it all back to you. We have double the money. We're really, really sorry about it. Please don't whack us and put us back in prison. Oh, and we, we brought extra money and even some pistachio nuts for you to snack on. Now, surprisingly, the steward's response is peace to you. Do not be afraid. Your God and the God of your father has put treasure in your sacks for you. I received your money. Well, maybe the steward really liked pistachio nuts. I don't know. But Simeon is released. They wash their feet. Feed the donkeys. And when Joseph shows up, they're ready for a meal. Verse 26. When Joseph came home, they brought into the house to him the present that they had with them and bowed down to him to the ground. And he inquired about their welfare and said, Is your father well, the old man of whom you spoke? Is he alive? 
They said, your servant, our father, is well. He is alive. And they bowed their heads and prostrated themselves. And he lifted up his eyes and saw his brother Benjamin, his mother's son, and said, Is this your youngest brother of whom you spoke to me? May God be gracious to you, my son. And then Joseph hurried out, for his compassion grew warm for his brother, and he sought a place to weep. And he entered his chamber and wept there. The brothers bow down again. But this time Joseph sees his full biological brother. This is the boy he never got to wrestle with. This is the boy he never got to see grow up. Joseph hasn't seen him since he was a child and he couldn't handle the emotion. He goes into his bedroom and he just weeps. Joseph cries again. There's a lot of crying in this narrative, isn't there? Real men do cry. But look at what else real men do. Verse 31. Here's totally a guy move right here. Then he washed his face, came out, and controlling himself, he said, serve the food. I mean, real men do cry, but sometimes a guy doesn't want anyone to know that he's cried. He washes out his tears, gets himself together, and he comes back to dinner. And now at the dinner table, there's the feast. And there's another test. This one's going to be interesting. The brothers are all seated according to their ages. I wondered how they did this. Did, the, did Joseph tell the steward and give him instructions on how to order them? Were the brothers creeped out that everyone knew their age? The text says at least they were amazed. And I wonder what the brothers were thinking as they were served the meal. Verse 34. Portions were taken to them from Joseph's table. But Benjamin's portion was five times as much as theirs. Okay, Reuben, here's a steak for you. Simeon, medium to well done for you. Levi, you asked for yours to be rare. Here's your steak. Benjamin, five steaks for you. And what about dessert? Asher, here's a piece of chocolate cake. Gad, here's a piece of cheesecake. Benjamin, here's an entire molten lava chocolate cake with five scoops of vanilla ice cream and a tray of homemade cupcakes on the side. I mean, just imagine Benjamin there with his eyes glowing at the table with this abundance of food in front of him. Or it would have been incredibly awkward for him. I mean, this is strange. What is, what is Joseph doing? Well, it was a test, a very delicious test, at least for Benjamin. But how is this a test? Well, if the brothers were envious for another son of Rachel's, Jacob's favorite, then these five steaks, molten lava, chocolate cake, cupcakes, well, those items were bound to elicit more envy. Maybe they'd start bickering in Hebrew. Maybe they'd mock their brother. Maybe they'd pick on him. Joseph is looking out for it. What's their response? 
essentially nothing. Well, except, look at the last words of verse 34. And they, speaking of the brothers, drank and were merry with him. The brothers did nothing except they ate, they drank, they were happy, they were satisfied. They had been honest about what was happening. They made restitution earlier for the money. They enjoyed the meal, not even a hint of jealousy. They were thankful for what they received, even when their brother received five times more than they did. There seems to be a greater maturity about their lot in life. And they were more aware of God's intervention than ever before. The brothers are far from perfect at this point, but there are little seeds of growth. The family is beginning to be transformed. There's a ray of hope for God's people. They're fed physically, and there's some improvement spiritually. We've seen an improvement or a growth in Joseph's life, too. He doesn't take vengeance on his brothers. Now, this is simply astonishing. For the first time, Joseph has his brothers under his power. He was the victim of their hatred. Now he has the entire country of Egypt behind him. The power of the entire empire behind him to take vengeance on the brothers. What would you do? If you were in his shoes. Do you ever fantasize about taking revenge out on someone? Do you ever dream of being in Joseph's position? Do you ever think about what it would be like to do to someone something something rough to get back at them? Do you ever think about what you'd like to do to someone who's hurt you? Does it dominate your life? Your thoughts? But friends, the lie of revenge is thinking that it will satisfy your heart. But it never does. It never works. There's always someone else, isn't there? We think if only this person were gone, then I'd be happy. If this person would just leave then I'll be okay. But there's always another person waiting around the corner. There's always another problem awaiting you. And you're never really rid of someone. You know, the brothers, they just wanted Joseph to be gone, and so they sold him into slavery. But he was never really out of their lives, was he? That memory of what they did, that guilt of what they did, it haunted them. It was at the forefront of their minds when Benjamin was the centerpiece in this story. Friend, have you ever considered that the common denominator in all those relationships is you? That maybe, maybe you and your sin is the problem when you're bitter at others. Well, here are a few questions to ask yourself. One, do I always have to have the last word? Do I always have to have the last word? Two, Do I always have to prove myself right? Do 
Do I have to win every debate? Do I always need everyone to know how right I am? And number three, do I always make sure someone knows how much they've hurt me? Do I have this deep desire that I want everyone who's hurt me to just know how much they've hurt me? To rub it in? To make them feel bad? Now this will preach in Dubai, right? Many of us have been wronged by someone here. Maybe you've been cheated out of money. Or you've been demoted because you wouldn't do something unethical at work. Maybe you've been mocked on your university campus or in secondary school for standing up for your faith. Or maybe it's another Christian who's hurt you. Sometimes that's the hardest because it's so tempting to want to make sure they know that you're right. What would you do in Joseph's situation? Joseph's been wronged by his brothers. 20 years of his life, for many of those, in prison. Before that, a slave. He hasn't seen his father. His whole life as he knew it, stripped away. And now he's got the power to do whatever he wants to them. He can put them in prison for the same amount of time he was put in prison. He can make them a slave for the same amount of time that he was a slave. But he doesn't. This has to be the shock of the entire passage. The whole time we're wondering, what is Joseph going to do to his brothers? He could get even, really even. What do his brothers deserve? In one sense, they deserve jail. They deserve justice. It reminds us of our relationship with God, doesn't it? In a sense, none of us get what we deserve. Maybe we haven't sold our brother into slavery, but we've done just as bad. We've all sinned against the almighty God of the universe. If, if you're here and you're not yet a believer of, in Christ, God has shown you grace too. He's shown you grace and is patient with you by sustaining your very life. Because each of us deserve instant death the moment we are born into sin. But in God's patience, he sustained you and he has sustained all of us. And to those of you who are followers of Christ, do you understand what God has done for you? You deserved death and eternal judgment. But instead of condemning us to death, Jesus, God in the flesh, came to us and lived a perfect life, free from envy, free from seeking revenge. He was mocked, but he kept silent. He was beaten, but he turned the other cheek. He was crucified, but said of the crowd, they know not what they do. Grace, grace, grace. It was all grace, and upon there on the cross, our sins were laid upon him. He died in our place as our sacrifice, and he rose from the dead, proving that he was not a God of vengeance, proving that he was not a God of payback, 
proving that he is a God of forgiveness, a God of compassion, a God of love and justice, justice and love. Even there on the cross, Jesus was free of vengeance. He looked there at the crowd, the crowd who were mocking him, the crowd who were cheering on his crucifixion, the crowd who put him to death. And he looked at them and said, Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. Friend, if you're here this morning and you don't know this grace, run to Jesus. Run to him today. Don't leave this room without running to him in your heart. Acknowledge your sin. Acknowledge that vengeance reigns in your heart. And ask him to change you. Repent of your sin and trust in Jesus to cleanse you, and he will. No more death and darkness and bondage to sin, but freedom and forgiveness will be your destiny. Well, here's an important question to ask of our passage as we close. Why didn't Joseph enact vengeance on his brothers? As you study this passage in your, your community groups, I wondered if you asked that. Why doesn't Joseph enact vengeance and justice on his brothers? Why not? Was it because he was worried about karma? Was he lazy? Did he have plans later on to maybe enact even worse judgment on them when they weren't expecting it? Well, no, he avoided it because he understood God and his character. See, as Christians, we don't act out revenge on others and give them what we think they deserve because God has not given to us what we do deserve. We're not vengeful people because God doesn't give to us what we do deserve. See, at the heart of the Gospels that we've gotten from God what we don't deserve, grace and forgiveness and reconciliation to him, eternal life with our God in heaven. So how could we now, as those who are saved, look to pay people back for what they've done to us? No, to be distinctly Christian is to love our enemies because Jesus first loved us. And now he commands us to now go and love others. Oh, friend, if you're struggling with a vengeful heart today, if you're struggling with bitterness towards someone, let me give you just one application to start today. Just one simple but profound thing that you can start right now. Start praying for that person every day. Pray for them every day. This is countercultural. It clashes with every ounce of my being. But if you've been hurt by someone, pray for them to change. Pray for God to work in their lives. Pray for God to change your feelings toward them. And how about this one? Pray for God to reveal to you your sin against them. Pray that God would give you the strength to love that person and pray for God to reconcile you to them. It's amazing how when you start praying for someone regularly, your compassion for them grows. 
you start seeing them as someone made in God's image. In that process, God starts changing your heart and making it more like Christ's. Joseph understood this about his situation. He trusted in God to work out the rights and the wrongs himself. He didn't play God. Joseph had all the power in Egypt. He had the king's signet ring on his finger. He led the entire staff, lives in the palace. The power is in his hands. But he understood that there is one more powerful than him. That there's a God who holds the whole universe in his hands. And he works all things for the good of his people. Now, thankfully, Jacob was wrong in chapter 42, verse 36, when he says, all these things are against me. They weren't against him. In fact, everything God was doing was for Jacob, the famine, the perceived harshness of the Egyptian who in reality was Joseph, the demand to bring Benjamin, and even the silver in the brother's sacks were all expressions of God's loving kindness. This family was being transformed and they didn't even know it. The family was being reconciled and they have no idea what's happening. Friend, God is always doing a million things that we can't see. He's the one you can trust. And when you have that in mind, you won't seek revenge. You won't let bitterness build up in your heart. But you'll leave all judgment to God. Let's pray together. Father, many times the circumstances of our lives don't make any sense. We can't see your hand on us. And yet we know you are there. We know that in a most intricate way, you are weaving the details of our lives together for our good and for your glory. With you in our sight, we can have joy in sorrow. We can have strength to cast out all fears. Oh, would we trust you to make all wrong things right? And would we honor you as we deal with hurt and confusion in our lives? We pray this in Christ's name. Amen.